everyone. Welcome. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. Thank you so much for joining us for our Medically Speaking program tonight. And we are, of course, it's the first week, um, into the first week of March, and we're celebrating Heart Month. And really excited to have with us one of our newer cardiologists. He's actually an interventional cardiologist, Dr. Abdul Hasib Kazi. Hi, Dr. Kazi. Hi, Dr. Kazi. Hi. Hi. How are you? Johnny almost missed, missed in connecting you to me. Bad fingers. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We're really excited to have you and, and talk about your specialty. And just so everyone knows, so Dr. Kazi, you've been with us now. I've known you for almost two years now, right? It's, uh, it's almost going to be two years this summer. See? A year and a half. It feels like it's more. Yeah, I mean, all those uh, coffee breaks, I feel like we've gotten to know know each other way better. We get to know each other way better. So you um, are based out of our St. Francis um, market, out of St. Francis Hospital, but you come every other week to the Waterbury market too, right? So you're somewhat of a regional doc. Correct. So my role, basically, I'm employed with Trinity Health, which encompasses several hospitals um, in the area. Um, I'm mainly based at St. Francis, but I also um, come and provide some specialized um, care when it comes to cardiac services down yeah. in, in the Waterbury area. Um, so I'm at St. Mary's Hospital um, every other week. Which was Which is when you and I get to connect, which I love. Which is great. And, you know, one of the things we talk about with Trinity Health of New England is this development of regional programs, and cardiology is one of them. And you have some unique specialty within cardiology, which I find exciting because you can do a lot of things. And when you and I connected earlier um, to talk about what we were going to talk about tonight, we, we kind of targeted a couple things, and we thought we'd talk a bit about valvular disease because you definitely focus on that as well as some of the advancements in the treatment of, with structural heart. So can we talk a bit about, first of all, let's talk about you a little bit. How did you come to Trinity Health of New England? Well, um, interestingly, when I was a med student, I actually did a rotation um, in, at St. Francis Hospital, um, and it was a cardiology rotation. And fast forward 10 years, I uh, was actually still in touch with some of the, the physicians I had um, shadowed when I was a med student. And 10 years later, the opportunity grew. I actually trained a lot in the Midwest, then ended up back in East Coast and up in Boston, where I wow. finished my last fellowship. And then my came time to take a job, I um, looked at opportunities, and this was obviously, you know, one of those places which was the setting stone in terms of foundations uh, when it comes to cardiology, um, and I reconnected with, with the hospital group here, and um, it was like, you know, the perfect time, the perfect opportunity, and it was a great opportunity to actually help build yeah. on on the an amazing program here and I felt very supported um, in terms of um, some of the structure we wanted to build here. One of the things that I'm so excited about that I really want the community to know and to understand, you know, we keep saying this word, word regional approach, but we have so many cardiologists that are part of our are part of your team and they range from general cardiology to interventional cardiology to electrophysiology. We have a huge team of specialists, cardiovascular surgery. And between the two hospitals, St. Mary's and St. Francis, we can take care of pretty much every heart disease. 
That's that's so rightly put. And I think the the best thing about this is uh, most of the time patients don't want to travel far right. from home. And and I think the the best thing about this regional approach is is you can provide a lot of the the basic services close to home. And if they need something more advanced that is not provided at a particular facility, mm-hmm. we can facilitate um, their transfer to a different hospital um, where we have that facility available. Um, such as, for instance, I deal with uh, structural heart disease, which involves uh, patients with valvular heart disease if they need any treatment for any advanced replacement when it right. comes to their valvular heart disease, which means either if they need a TAVR or any other catheter-based procedures, we do a lot of their workup initially close to home and considering from their initial appointment to their echocardiogram to initial approach in terms of their evaluation from a cardiac surgeon. And that just limits the amount of time uh, patients actually spend in traveling between different locations. Right. And it basically puts up in a very expedited manner where they can get all the things they need um, as well as have a clear pathway in terms of how they can approach any kind of uh, cardiovascular condition for that matter. You know, you mentioned some of your fellowships, and, you know, I don't want to be remiss in saying, I mean, you've done been at some incredible places, including Mass General um, and Harvard Medical School, and that was for a fellowship also. And, you know, knowing that we've been really blessed to be able to get the caliber that we can to the team, including yourself, patients should really feel like they're getting the best of the best. I think one of the great things about training at some of the institutions like Mass General was the fact that you um, learn a lot of newer techniques mm-hmm. in terms of uh, and then pushing the envelope when it comes to taking care of our patients. And so we're basically at Trinity providing some of the most advanced techniques and technologies when it comes to taking care of our patients. Um, since the year and a half I've been here, um, we've actually, um, as a team, grown so much, and we've now doing a lot more advanced procedures when it comes to patients that require any kind of catheter-based um, heart procedures. So I'm really excited to talk a bit about valvular disease and talk about what we mean when we're speaking to that and how are some of the advancements in treatment. I think it's really important to talk about, you know, talking about the valves of the heart, what you're looking for, what are some of the common common um, things that you see in valvular disease. So basically, um, the heart has four valves, um, and they are two on the right side, two on the left side. And one of the main valves, which actually controls the flow of the blood between the heart's lower left chamber, which is the left ventricle, and the aorta, which is basically the main artery that brings the oxygenated blood from the heart to the body. And what, what I tell patients is basically the aortic valve serves as a door between your heart and the and the main artery that supplies blood to the rest of your body. And as we age or due to some other conditions, that door can get tighter and tighter and something we call aortic stenosis. And if you can imagine, if there's not enough blood supply across that door, you're not getting enough oxygenated blood to your body and patients can start experiencing symptoms um, and as it becomes more and more severe. And the symptoms could include if you're not getting enough blood supply to the heart, patients can start getting chest pain symptoms, which is basically tightness in your chest, especially if you're doing any kind of activity. Um, sometimes patients have shortness of breath, which is you're experiencing some hard time breathing, especially after being active. If you're not getting enough oxygen to the brain, you can feel lightheaded or dizzy. Um, a lot of times patients just feel 
fatigued and extremely exhausted after they increase their activity. And the way to easiest way to pick it up is actually um, just by physical examination, your primary care doctor or your general cardiologist on by basically just listening to your heart with a stethoscope can pick up an abnormal heart sound, which we call a heart murmur. And that actually is one of the ways that a lot of our patients are referred to us because on physical examination finding, they appreciate a murmur. And when you do a heart ultrasound, which is called an echo, you can actually appreciate that that valve is now tight. And when it is in that severe category and it kind of correlates with the symptoms, then that's the time basically that it necessitates some kind of intervention. And on the newer testing that you have, you can actually watch that happen, right? Correct. So now we can, yes. So on based on the heart ultrasound and echo, you can actually visualize the heart valves. You can actually visualize how tight they are, the flow of blood across it. And then at times you can even, to collaborate what you're seeing on an echo, you can actually do invasive measures where you can go inside with the help of catheters and measure how big of a difference is in the pressure between the different parts of the heart. And then also you can do CAT scan, which kind of gives an idea of the structure and morphology of that valve as well. And what do you do for intervention to this? And when do you do the intervention? Like when it, when, what's the trigger point? No, that's a, that's a great question. Um, a lot of patients who just have, you know, the tightening of the valve in the mild to moderate range, and that's basically based on how tight the valve is in terms of its area, what's the velocity across it. You can actually just watch those patients. We watch those patients pretty closely uh, with the help of ultrasound um, every 6 to 12 months. And then once they get into the severe range and then they are also symptomatic, um, those are the times we basically consider patients to get an intervention, and there are two ways of doing this. Um, and what I tell patients is there's no WD-40 for the heart valve that, you know, you, <laughs> the medication can make it less tight. What you need is a new door, and there are two ways of doing this. Um, one is an open heart surgery where a cardiac surgeon can basically do an open heart and put in a new valve um, in, instead of your old valve. And the other way of doing this is basically something called TAVR, which stands for transcatheter aortic valve replacement, which is basically replacing the disease valve with another valve, which is uh, not through an open heart procedure, but you actually go uh, by putting in these small tubes inside the arteries. You go from um, those arteries from the groin or any alternative, any other artery in the body that is large enough to basically uh, accommodate those catheters. And you can put in a small, um, with the help of a small catheter, a new valve inside the old valve. Um, which is, I think, a great technology that has totally revolutionized the care we provide for patients with aortic stenosis. Um, It's obviously way different in terms of recovery time um, compared to, say, open-heart surgery. Um, What you're looking at is patients like yesterday we did three of these procedures, and um, those patients are walking in home today. Wow. Um, and, And that just... Most of the time, when they get the procedure, we just make sure that they're exercised. We suture, we use different techniques of making sure it's not bleeding. We wash them for a few hours, and then we walk them the same day, and most of the patients are uh, able to go home the very next day. What is the further recovery for that for the patient? What is their limitations, and how soon can they get back to normal activity? 
what I what I tell patients is you should be able to get back to your normal activity the very next day. Um, what I do tell patients is to be just slightly careful in terms of making sure you're not lifting anything heavy mm-hmm. or doing anything too strenuous till you see us in clinic to make sure that those access sites in the groin are not bleeding. Right. Um, th- that's pretty much the only thing we uh, worry about. Um, but we do have a very structured program where they see their, where they see their primary cardiologist uh, within a week or two after the procedure and they see us in about 30 days um, and then most of the time we we don't see them for about a year later then uh, just because they're doing so good you know we see so much out there on Tavers um, you see advertisements you see billboards you see all of that and it's so incredible to know that we are also at the cutting edge of this not only that, we are actually now um, at with Trinity Health doing a lot more advanced procedures where patients who have had a prior open heart surgery or have had a prior caver procedure, we're actually now, if there's a failure of that valve, we can actually put in valves inside those valves as wow. well. And that actually gives patients an opportunity to, um, you know, come back to living a healthy life um, and not needing another open heart surgery for that matter. So, you know, you bring up a good point. What is the longevity of these replacements? That's a good question. And obviously, you know, this is newer technology that's been there for about the past decade or two. Um, And what you're seeing is any, it's basically shown to be as good as uh, a bioprosthetic valve, which is a tissue-made valve. Um, And so you're looking at anywhere between, you know, around 10 years. 10 to wow. 15 years, depending on, but then obviously, you know, it's, it varies from person to person and, and depending on their anatomy as well. So with the follow-up for the patient, you know, with their, with their general cardiologist, which is also a point I want to make, and you and I have had this conversation before that, you know, when a patient gets referred to you, they don't have to switch cardiologists. You are there, um, to, to be a compliment and to take on the procedural part for the the patient that was referred to you by the cardiologist, but they can follow with their cardiologist in the future. No, definitely. And what I what I tell patients is um, they should always continue to seek care with their primary cardiologist because they know them better. They have had that relationship over the years. Plus, I think what I tell patients is they've had an excellent cardiologist who was able to diagnose this this condition to begin with. Um, and so our limitations are basically are we try to fix our role in basically collaborating with that cardiologist to find out when should we intervene, when should we put in this new valve, and then at the same time we ensure that these patients are seen by their primary cardiologist within a couple of weeks of the procedure. Mm. Um, the way we have done this is in our valve clinic, most patients after they're done with their procedure, they see us at 30 days where we just do a repeat heart ultrasound to make sure that valve is looking good. And then we see them back at, a, at about a year time uh, from then and just to make sure that their valve looks good. And afterwards we tell them to follow up with their primary cardiologist. Now, um, what do you do to see the valve? Do you do more imaging? Correct. So we do uh, an echocardiogram, okay. which is basically the ultrasound of the heart. Yep. So it, we we speak about the the aorta and the stenosis. Are there any other issues regarding valves in in the heart that we can have you expand on that you see? Yeah. No. Definitely. I think uh, one, there's the, the 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 whole category of structural heart involves mm-hmm. a lot of interventions where um, we even go in with the help of. You might have heard of patients having a hole in the heart 
um, that they're born with that hole in the heart yeah. and they, you know, if they present at an early age, at a young age with a stroke, now we actually uh, can close those holes with the help of a catheter without needing an open heart surgery. Um, also, now we are extending it to the mitral valve where patients who have a leaky valve can actually uh, get in a sort of uh, a procedure from the help of a catheter where you can actually decrease the amount of leakiness in those valves as well. So not only are you now able to treat patients who have tight valves, but at the same time, you, there are a lot of other procedures available now um, that you can do for the help of leaky valves as well. Um, you might ask me this question, how do I decide if somebody should is a good open-heart candidate mm-hmm. versus somebody should get TAVR? And um, and thing, I think the beauty of this is we have a full team. Um, every patient that comes in to get evaluated by us is also seen by a cardiac surgeon. And basically what we do is is we make sure that we all sit down as a part of a team and we review every patient individually. We look at all their imaging, we look at all their um, prior studies done, and then obviously putting the patient at the center of our decision-making, we decide if a patient is gonna be a good candidate for open heart versus uh, a catheter-based procedure. Um, We then communicate with the primary cardiologist uh, just to make sure that they're also part um, of of this decision-making. And um, then basically we decide upon the timing and the modality based on um, how the patient is doing as well as uh, based on the preference of the patient. And then finally the decision is made at, uh, at our heart valve meetings in terms of uh, which route to take when it comes to taking care of these patients. You know, you mentioned leaking. And, you know, I keep thinking about mitral valve and so many women hear about mitral valve and murmurs. Can you expand on that? Correct. So um, a lot of patients who have leaky valve, like mitral valve, um, can start developing symptoms of heart failure where the leakiness could be um, either due to their heart failing or the leaky valve can cause heart failure. And if, if, if they think that, you know, if they're not being, if they're in that severe category where medications are not able to help these patients with heart failure, um, you have uh, several options in terms of either an open heart surgery, uh, where you can get their mitral valve, uh, fixed, or you can now do something called mitral clip, uh, which at St. Francis, um, we've now introduced that technology as well, um, with some of the, with the, some of the physicians doing that, that procedure as well. Um, So definitely advancing the care when it comes to patients uh, with these valvular heart disease. You know, the mitral valve prolapse, they used to watch over a lifetime, right, for patients. And, you know, when do you actually pull the trigger on that? Well, I think the biggest thing is we watch these patients with echocardiogram and we watch to make sure that they're not in that severe category where the prolapse is so severe Mm -hmm. That, or if they have either a ruptured cord or any other reason for this valve to be super leaky, um, once they're in that severe category and it's basically causing symptoms that you cannot treat with medications, that's the time to intervene, whether it's surgical or um, by any other intervention. What are some of the symptoms of people that come in with that when it gets to that point? I mean, same thing where a patient is maybe tired and short of breath. I mean, or do they kind of go hand in hand with valve disease? It's, it's, 
it's more heart failure symptoms mm. uh, when it comes to the mitral valves, and have a lot of times this is basically picked up by patients who are followed by heart failure physicians um, because they're the ones who are managing these patients with heart failure um, on top of their general cardiologist. And then when they, um, based on the severity and based on their symptoms, when they're not being able to manage by just medications, is a time that these patients should get um, some kind of intervention, whether it's surgery or a catheter-based procedure. You know, and are these patients also more at risk for clotting because the heart isn't functioning properly? Now, that's... Robin, I think you might have a get a degree in in cardiology by the end of this session, but well, it's basically uh, most of the time if they have heart failure, whether it's right side or left, the likelihood of developing a blood clot is low. Um, most of the times we see blood clots forming inside the heart is if they're something called ejection fraction, which means how good their heart is pumping. Okay. Um, if that involves their apex of the heart, which means their, you know, their entire top part of the heart is not squeezing that blood out, right. they can start pooling blood. Um, and those are the patients we usually are able to identify of developing a blood clot inside the heart. Um, that blood clot obviously um, happens in patients who have had, say, a massive heart attack mm-hmm. involving that entire area of the heart. And now that heart the part of the heart is not squeezing right. and you can develop a blood clot there that you could identify on a heart ultrasound and those patients then need to be on blood thinners uh, to help dissolve that blood clot. Yeah, I mean, you know, <clears throat> there's definitely, you know, the symptoms for a lot of patients are common, right? You know, you have, like you said, you have that chest pain, you have that tiredness and the only way for your team or for a general cardiologist to make sure he knows exactly what's going on. Because it's so much more than just a heart attack. You know, when I was a, very young and my grandfather had a couple of heart attacks, it was it, it was just a heart attack. You really didn't fully understand it. You know, we didn't fully understand it. But I think that our community um, now is so in tune to so much more of what they're seeing. But the symptoms are so similar. The only way to find out is to test them. To really and, see what's and what going I, on. And, and what I tell patients is um, if you, like, you know, if you were watching a lot of these advertisements or something like that, you see, or, or, or movies and stuff, the classic heart attack symptoms, right. which we used to see growing up, yeah. was patients clenching their chest. Yeah. But what I tell them is a lot of patients have, um, have symptoms that are not that classic. Um, and you see that in diabetics, you see that in women where they present with symptoms such as shortness of breath, nausea, um, and that could also be a marker of, uh, having a heart attack. And what I see, what I tell patients is, is don't wait for your symptoms to get so worse to the point that you, um, are too late to seek medical care. Um, at the earliest of times, you should come see your doctor if you're experiencing symptoms that are, you know, irrespective of the time of the day, you should go to your nearest ER uh, to get evaluated to make sure you're not having an active heart attack. But the constellation of symptoms that patients with heart disease is it's so variable now and it's not just chest pain you can have a lot of other symptoms like shortness of breath nausea uh people throwing up um and and those are the, some of the other alarming symptoms especially uh, in in the elderly population well you know and that brings us to a good point because believe it or not we're already at the bottom of the hour but what i want to say is you know 
it's so important for people to have a really solid primary care doctor that they see routinely, right, and with a good health history, and then partnering with a cardiologist, um, particularly as we get older, and making sure we had all the right tests so that those warning signs, we're seeing things early enough so that we can no, follow definitely. patients. And, and, and then I think the most important part is, is, is a healthy lifestyle and, and making you know, significant changes in their lifestyle when it comes to dietary modifications to being more active. But at the same time, make sure they have good preventive care with their primary uh, care physician as well as cardiologist to stay on top of their blood pressure, their cholesterol, because a lot of these heart conditions are preventable. Um, and I think I've, I stress a lot of importance on prevention rather than treatment. Um, and even if you have a strong family history, I think there's a lot of research out, out right. there that the only thing that offsets strong family history is, a, is, is your lifestyle. Right. And, and I feel like as long as you follow closely with your primary care and, and your cardiologist and stay on top of your blood pressure, your cholesterol, um, avoid all those risk factors, including avoiding smoking, um, hopefully you do not have any progression to the point where you need somebody as specialized as us in terms of any intervention. Um, so prevention is actually the best intervention. So Dr. Kazi? We are at the end of our program. Do you believe how fast that went? Uh, <laughs> with Robin, every time I meet you, I think time flies anyways, <laughs> whether it's a cup of coffee or oh, over the phone call. So. Thank you, Doc. So please, please, please visit our website, Dr. Abdul Kazi, Q-A-Z-I. Um, go under the search. He will pop up. He is at 1000 Asylum Avenue in our Jengris building in uh, St. Francis. The phone number, 860 860- Seven one four eight seven six one. That's eight six zero seven one four eight seven six one. And go on our website, trinityhealthofne.org. Dr. Kazi, thank you again so much. Can I bring you back on another time? Definitely, Robin. And I, I feel like the the cardiovascular disease is so vast that we can, you know, can talk for hours uh, on on those particular topics. But happy to chat at any time. And thank you again for this opportunity. And hopefully, it was helpful to our listeners as well. Thank you, Doc. Have an awesome evening. You as well. Take thank care. you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. That was Dr. Abdul Kazi. Hope you enjoyed our program. I'll be back in two weeks with another cardiologist. Take care.